0: You already know that if you need a car wash, you need to go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. They've got all the tools and expertise to keep your car clean, both inside and on the outside. You want it clean inside because if anybody gets in your car, they're not going to want it look like a pigsty. Plus, you're going to want it clean of all those germs. You want to clean on the outside because if you're going to be pulling up in somebody's neighborhood, maybe going to see a friend, they're going to see the outside of your car and go, wow. This guy, he knows what he's doing with his car washes. That's because Tommy's Express Car Wash is going to take care of you. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and body wax that's right have it looking real spiffy wheel cleaning and tire gloss underbody flush and spot free rinse and vacuums as well if you're like me you have a dog i have a golden retriever she sheds so much so i need the vacuums at tommy's express car wash and boy do they have them they do them right that's wash rinse repeat with tommy's express car wash and don't forget to download the tommy club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price that's at tommy's express car wash
2: You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with
3: Nick Schwert and Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN.
2: Simple question for you to start today's show. Sometimes I start with a thought of my own. Sometimes I start with a piece of breaking news or information, but today I'm keeping it simple. Simple question that requires a simple answer. You understand? Okay. Simple.
0: Simple, Jack. Would you suck? Okay. Where are we going here? Would you suck?
2: <laughs> let me get. Let me get this out. Okay.
0: Would what, you? Well, okay. Now you're. Okay. Would what you? What are you getting out and asking me to suck?
2: Would you suck on Albert Einstein's brain until your mouth went numb? Simple
0: question. That does not seem simple at all. No. You, you would not do it. What's the ploy here?
2: The ploy would be that you would hopefully retain some of his brilliance. I mean, one of the smartest men to ever have lived. You think that's how it works?
0: E equals MC squared. Is that why cannibals exist? They eat people and think they're going to take on their, their brain Didn't power? Didn't eat. Didn't say eat. Oh, Okay. <sniffs>
2: Just suck on it. Okay, so this is uh, this is an excerpt from a uh, a book called "Notes from the Cave." Notes from the Cave, and it is, I, I it's written this this specific excerpt is from Joshua Cohen. Okay, and. This is what Joshua Cohen had to say about his time as a professor at the University of Kansas. I don't know. Who, I don't know what, what he's doing now or when exactly uh, he was at Kansas. But he's forty years old. He is a writer, and um, he wrote this. Okay. When Albert Einstein died in 1955. His brain was removed during an unsanctioned autopsy at a hospital in Princeton. Later, at the University of Pennsylvania, a pathologist named Thomas Stoltz Harvey sliced it up for research purposes but kept some of the slivers for himself. In 1988, Harvey, who had since been stripped of his medical license, imagine that, moved to Lawrence, Kansas, where he presented one of the slivers to local author William S. Burroughs. If you're from around here, if you've spent enough time in Lawrence, you probably have heard the name William S. Burroughs. After William S. Burroughs died in 1977, or 1997, excuse me, it was passed into the possession of dot, dot, dot. And it says, I'm going to stop now because I don't want to get anyone in trouble. Let's just say that when I was in Lawrence teaching at KU, this was a thing that still happened. A hazing That was also an homage. You scooped the bit of Einstein's brain out of the jar. Ugh. You shook off the excess formaldehyde. Then, you put some salt in the crook of your thumb, licked it. Like a tequila shot? After which, you took down a shot of cheap room temperature tequila, and then chased the tequila... By sucking on the brain bit until your mouth went numb, until the formaldehyde paralyzed your lips and tongue, and you couldn't be understood. You couldn't even feel yourself trying to make language. That is the end of this particular excerpt. So, yes, it's not like you're essentially replacing the lime of a tequila shot with Einstein's brain. Which you could say, oh, though it's disgusting. Okay, well, what I would say, well, t- taking shots of tequila is disgusting. That's bad for you. You think? You think? So if you're gonna do something bad, okay, might as well rank, follow it up rank with those them.
0: three. Rank those three: licking salt off your gross hands, taking a shot of warm room temperature cheap tequila, and sucking Einstein's brain. Rank those three for me.
2: Okay. Well, uh, we as Americans consume far too much sodium. I think it's uh, the average American consumes like four to five times the recommended daily amount of sodium. So that's the worst. Well, it's off your dirty hands, right? Bacteria, yeah. germs, all of the above. Uh, tequila, cheap tequila, room temperature. Not good for you. There's a reason why you have gag reflexes when you drink tequila <laughs> when you drink alcohol is because your body is saying this doesn't belong here. And alcoholism, very serious. Yes, true can damage your kidney. It can damage relationships, Mm -hmm. lifestyles, all of the above. So that's second worst. Mm -hmm. And then obviously third worst is Einstein's brain. Yeah, because what is that hurting, right? Name one thing bad that's ever happened to
0: somebody sucking on brain. Mm. What? There's got to be something bad about like having something that's been in formaldehyde, right? Like that is, that's what they coat. Yeah, you know, what is what exactly
2: is formaldehyde? Formaldehyde
0: is the stuff that you smell. You know when you would like dissect a whatever, yeah. like frog or, or something in high school, middle school. Yeah. That's what they store it in. Like, it's just a chemical to like preserve things, like uh, cadavers. You know what those are. Yeah, that's what they store them in. So are you saying that I'm saying the that-
2: numbness comes from the formaldehyde more than it would the brain?
0: Yes, I I don't think. I think the formaldehyde so you ingesting don't think any, that is way worse than ingesting tequila. So I mean, you don't think there is
2: anything to gain from sucking on one of the smartest man of all times' <laughs> brain? No. See, I here is here is the thing. If you if if somebody walked in right now, maybe this maybe this brain's still around here because they this guy doesn't even really delve into who has it now. Okay, but I am I, I think it'd be reasonable to believe it's still in Lawrence, Kansas. Think about that for a second. Albert Einstein's brain could be within 10 miles of here. Which means somebody who's listening right now could be in possession of it. And they're thinking, holy bleep, I've been found out. (laughs) No, you haven't. Because here's my offer. I'll do it. You bring it to me. I'll do it exactly how they did it back in the 90s at KU. Lick the salt. Cheap room temperature tequila. Chase it. With some of Einstein's brain. You will not. Here's why. Here's why. Here's why. Because we don't know what potential benefits could come from that. You don't know the potential risks. Yeah, we do. We do just went over know? them. The germs, the sodium intake, you know, the the kidney or the the liver problems. Formaldehyde, if it's gonna make you a little numb, you're not gonna you're not gonna overdose on formaldehyde. But if there's even a 1% chance that sucking on a piece of Einstein's brain gives me just 1% of his brain power, I think that's worth it. I think that would be an endeavor worth pursuing.
0: I feel like there are some very serious risks associated with the formaldehyde part. I I just want to circle back. There we go. Like you might have to call poison control. I don't know.
2: For just a little bit. Just a little bit. No. No, I mean, you're talking about the smartest man to I've ever lived. I'll, I'll risk it for a little formaldehyde. Do
0: you think you're going to come out of that just, like, super smart?
2: Yeah, immediately. It's like, somebody get me a chalkboard now. Now! <laughs> and then, you know, somebody rushes to get me a chalkboard, and they bring it over, and I just start doing long formulaic equations. Nobody has any clue what they mean. Not even I. But it's just, like, going to be... You know, uh, freedom of conscience, just just going, not even thinking, just whatever comes out, and I'm writing it you on the shelf You how to
0: time travel. Could be time travel. I could cure, you know, some sort of disease, uh, yeah. end world hunger. What if that's what it is? What if somebody in the future went back in time and told Albert Einstein, your brain sucking on it is going to be the key to time travel? So he was like, make sure you write in your will that it's preserved and that people can take shots of tequila, suck on it, and then they're going to figure out how to do time travel. From just somehow. Would you be okay if after you're gone? No.
2: I already know where. No. You don't want people sucking on your brain? No. Why do you care? I think it's an honor.
0: You they think, think there's honor.
2: something inside your brain I think that's it's worth weird. getting
0: out. I think it's very, very weird. I mean, where do you draw the line there? Where do you draw the line? What I if don't. I said, "What you if I do said everybody.
2: you can do whatever you want to my okay. body after I'm dead"? Uh,
0: what if, what if somebody, what if your, I don't know, your sister or your parents go up to you and say, "Hey, when you die, we're gonna make you into a chair." Is that okay? A chair? Yeah. I don't think it would hold up. Oh, uh, you figure out a way. I mean, you add other support.
2: No, I it. don't want you making. I don't want me make me into furniture. Like, don't put me on. But it's sp- the same idea. That, that's it that's, nobody would do that nobody ever would do that ever people are <laughs> yeah. obviously sucking on brains so that's, that's different that's weirder I don't, ah, pay, I don't know if it's weirder it's ah. not you're not putting a dead body on display but like I mean just in terms of you know harvest my organs do whatever you want with those you don't even have to give me a coffin just
0: throw me you don't even have to have, but like, you, you know what they're harvesting organs for it's for like hey somebody needs a, a kidney replaced or liver replaced they're not being like hey John in room two wants to go suck on your liver. Hey, yeah,
2: he's he's got a kidney. He's got a thing for kidneys. So, care if he has yours? I'd say. Well, does anybody else need it? they would say. Well, no. I'd say. Well, yeah, give it to him. Yeah, if it makes his, if it makes one, if it makes somebody else happier, like that's my lasting impact on Earth, <laughs> okay. is I'm making somebody else's day. Then, uh, then I'm all for it. We're gonna talk to Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World coming up here in about. 20 minutes or so. One thing that's standing out to me about this offseason for KU basketball is that above all else, we set everything else aside. If you're saying, I'm not sure about this guy. I'm not sure about that guy. How is this all going to fit? Who's going to play where? Let's set those questions aside. One thing that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that next year's team is going to be objectively better than, At knocking down outside shots. And that may seem like such a rudimentary observation. Of course they are, right? But I don't think you understand just how impactful that's going to be. Last year, KU shot 33%. 33 33.6 to be exact. If you remove the Washburn game where they went 13-26. Which I think you should because... uh, Not Division 1. That was the worst mark a KU team has had... Since 2003, oddly enough, a team that went to the national championship. People don't think back to that and think, wow, that was a terrible shooting team. But it was. It had Kirk Heinrich and a bunch of other dudes. But as we know, the game's changed a lot since then. It's the worst mark for Bill Self since his first season as a head coach at Oral Roberts in 1994. That team shot 33.1% from three. So, what is that? 27 seasons of coaching? It's the second worst he's ever had. And it's not that you have to be the best or one of the best three-point shooting teams to be really competitive or a national championship contending team in college basketball. It's about two things. Basically, you can't be the worst. You can't be really bad. And you need to at least have the ability to get hot and essentially obliterate your opponent. Because how many times do we see somebody do that to KU? last year. I mean, USC, case in point, they went 11 of 18. That was it. When a bad shooting team gets hot, it's over. Tennessee went 8 of 13. Texas went 12 of 26. West Virginia went 11 of 21. I mean, some of those aren't even good three-point shooting teams, but if you have the ability to knock down 50, 60% of your shots from deep in a game, you're going to be nearly impossible to beat. And Kansas never had that. They never had that gear. Like, getting hot for them last year was being a good three-point. Like, them getting hot was Baylor's baseline. Baylor was the number one three-point shooting team in the country. They shot, I think, about 41%. KU shot 41%. It would be one of the best games they had all season. But if Baylor got hot, it's not 41%. It's 54% or 60%. And in those games, nobody's beating them. And you look at the teams that had success. Look at the teams that go to the Final Four. I mean, Baylor was first in the country. UCLA was 35th in three-point percentage. Gonzaga was 45th. The year before, well, I guess it was two years before, when Virginia won it all, they were ninth in three-point percentage. Auburn, Michigan State, they both went to the Final Four. They were 21st and 31st. 2018, the year that Nova won it all, they were 11th. Kansas was 10th. Loyola was 17th. The average three-point shooting percentage for a Final Four team over the last five years is 37.5%. That's not 40. That's not 42. It's just above average. And I think that's where you have to look at it. It's not that you need to be amongst the best. You don't need to be a 40% three-point shooting team, but you need to be better than most. And you can't have that be a weakness like it was for Kansas last year. So we don't know exactly what's what's that, what everything's going to look like. like. Is Ochai going to be back? What's the starting lineup going to be? Uh, are you still going to get Dave touches down low? Do you still run the offense through him? All those questions have yet to be answered. But what we know, regardless of what decisions guys make, you got better shooters on this team than you did last year. I mean, Jalen Coleman lands from Iowa State. Will he even start? I don't know, but he's going to play. You know why? Because he's a 40% three-point shooter, high volume. Same thing with Joe Yesifu. High volume, 38%. Is he going to be the guy he was at the end of the year? We'll see. But over the course of the entire season, he was still a 38% three-point shooter. He would have been the best shooter on last year's team. Remy Martin, 35% shooter. He took a lot of shots at Arizona State. He took a lot of bad shots, some questionable shots at Arizona State. So you would imagine the shot selection going to change a little bit for him at Kansas. And with that, would come increased efficiency. Cam Martin wasn't even playing Division One, but he shot 44% from three-point range on five attempts per game. And I know we can get into this debate of, oh, that'll translate. Oh, will it? Because we said that about other guys and they couldn't even get on the floor. Like The 44.5% won't translate if you can't play because there are other things keeping you back. But Cam Martin can do the types of things he's going to need to do to get on the floor, there's no question that he's going to be able to knock down shots because he's done it with consistency and high volume. Hell, even the not the non-transfers, the high school kid, Zach Clements, your top-rated high school recruit, what's his number one trait? Shooting. I mean, he's the kind of the third fiddle for Sunrise Christian, but it's a really good prep school. Uh, their best player, Kendall Brown's going to Baylor. They got another kid going to Michigan State. They got another kid going to Tennessee. He shot 42%. Bobby Pettiford went from 30% shooter to a 39% shooter. Will those translate? We'll see. But you've got upside. Upside that you just didn't have a season ago. So we don't know about the defense. We don't know about interior scoring. We don't know how the ball movement's going to look. We don't know how the chemistry is going to look. We don't know any of that. Like, there's so many questions that still remain for this Kansas team. But one thing we know, the overarching theme of this offseason has been you have drastically improved your ceiling as a shooting team. I'm almost of the belief that I, I expect this team to sort of look like the team from 2018. And that doesn't mean I think they're going to be a Final Four team. Because remember, even though that was a one seed, they had a rocky regular season where you're getting to January and February and Bill Self's calling him out for being soft. He's saying it's the worst defensive team he's ever had. Like That was not smooth sailing, but they kind of found their footing late in the year, got a couple of big wins, went down to Lubbock, beat Texas Tech. Devontae was a hero several times throughout that year. Got the one seed, right? They were peaking at the right time going into the NCAA tournament. And then Malik Newman, you know that story. But this team on paper seems like it's going to play a lot like that. You're going to have three or four guys on the court at all times, that are going to be able to shoot. And the guys who are coming back, like we'll see what happens to Ochai and Jalen. Even Christian Brown, we know he's going to be back. Christian finished on a down downward note. 34% three-point shooter last year. Wouldn't you just think that with guys like Joe Yesifu, like Remy Martin, not just playmakers, but also capable shooters themselves, it's going to open things up on offense for everyone,
0: mainly Christian Brown. Christian Brown was a guy who couldn't get his shot because he doesn't have a quick release. Yeah. No, you can, you can literally have, I mean, you said two to three guys on the court at all times. If you really wanted to, like, KU hey, could throw out a lineup this next year where you have five shooters on the court at all times. I mean, it, it depends how you view Dave, like, because he can hit from the mid-range. Does he stretch it out from three, or do you view that as a shooter, even if he's not on the court? If you have Cam Martin at the five, that's a shooter. Yeah. Uh, we know that Yesfu and Remy Martin, they can be shooters. You mentioned Brown, all the wings. Like, you could put a shooter at all five spots if you wanted to. Now, how they play defensively is kind of what you were alluding to with Cam Martin. How that unit, how any of their units, their five men in the lineup at that time, is playing defensively is going to be what unlocks their ability to play as many shooters as possible.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I, I probably won't expect them to have five shooters on the court often. But if Cam Martin, if they, if they just decide, no, you're just not because of shooting, but just overall, you're our best backup big, then for sure. Because everybody else at the other positions is going to have the ability to shoot. Who, who are you putting him next to? you putting him next to Jalen Wilson and Jalen coleman Lands and Christian Brown and Remy Martin. Like, that's a lineup with five shooters. We can. How many
0: different lineups could we come up with? They could have a have whole five bench shooters. unit where they, like, platooned it out. Not that they would. Where, that it was all shooters. Just off the bench. Yeah, Exactly.
2: Like now, all of a sudden, it's harder to name the non-shooters than it is the shooters. Like the guys that you would say, oh, they're not much of a threat to score from the outside. It's basically Dewan Harris
0: and K.J. Adams. And even then, like for all we know, Dewan Harris is a good shooter. He just doesn't take a lot. He's, he's more of like a shooter that has to be open because of his shot. But then again, Tyrese Halliburton shot like 45% from three at Iowa State with that clunky shot. So I don't know. Yeah, it could be. It could be. He could be that dude.
2: But 14 shots in one season is, I mean, such a minuscule sample size. I would say that for a guy who seemed at times to be hesitant to shoot.
0: Wasn't in March, though.
2: That at wouldn't, least not the 10th, he Yeah, but he out. had to be. I think finally the coaches said, we can't play you unless you're just going to shoot he was these. still holes. hitting. You're right, he was. You're right. Um, but the lack of confidence to begin with would probably lend itself to him not being a strong shooter, nor is that what we ever really heard about. But. I, I do think that's going to be the identity of this team. I don't know if they're going to be like 2018 where they took that many threes, but I think they're going to be like that team in that you're going to have four guys on the court at all times you have to respect. And, and you know, what the, the funny thing about it
0: is we talk all about shooting. Who's that help more than anybody else? David McCormick. Right. See, I think it's a little closer to 2017 because before 2018 broke all the school records for three-point makes and three-point attempts in a season, it was broken the year before in 2017, but 2018 just did it better. And then you had, not saying Jalen Wilson's as good as Josh Jackson, but it's that same idea. Like, Josh wasn't an elite shooter, but he could shoot. That's how I view Jalen Wilson. He's more of like a, a matchup kind of nightmare guy you look at. I think they're, they're kind of like I think he'll be better.
2: I think Jalen will be better by default because... Shooting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, because it's just going to be a better environment for everyone to shoot in. Everyone. Yeah, like I Ochai, just, Ochai could come back. He shot what thirty eight percent last year. Ochai could come
0: back, and I would expect him to right. be a a, a plus forty percent shooter. The twenty eighteen team though had Svi at the four, and LeGerald Vick like at the three. Who you know, I I think it's more twenty seventeen, but th- that doesn't matter. That's splitting hairs because it's you're still talking about the, still two be- the, the two best
2: the two best that he's had. Yep, the two best that Bill Self's ever had at Kansas. So. That's certainly a theme of the offseason. How's it going to pan out? We'll find out. We'll talk more about it with Matt Tate of the LJ World. Coming up here in just a bit, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. (laughs) You go back to those comments after the USC game. I wonder if Bill Self is laughs at how much we've talked about those comments. I mean, everybody has talked about those. We live off those comments immediately in the aftermath of the USC game where he talks about we got to get longer, we got to get more athletic. Now, that's up for debate as to if they've officially accomplished that task. But it seems like in this attempt to sort of overhaul the roster, more than anything else, Kansas has enhanced its shooting ability. Matt Tate of the LJ World... KU Sports joins us now on the show. Matt, when you go back to those comments and sort of read what Bill Self was looking to do with this offseason, do you think that this is what he was talking about? Or do you think it's just sort of worked out this way?
3: Oh, I think it's exactly what he was talking about. Um, I think, you know, they obviously they, they wanted to get more athletic and bigger, and I think he did that in a lot of spots now. You know, He's got a bunch of seven footers and six ten bruisers and guys like that. But I don't think that necessarily was what he meant by getting bigger. I think if you can get bigger in some of the guard spots too, or on the wings or whatever that, you know, there's an option or or there's a way to look at that as, as getting bigger too overall. So I I think getting bigger, getting more athletic and then, yeah, the, the idea that they've added some, some, uh, some real real, legit three point shooting um, that, that, you know, they weren't entirely missing last year, but it, it, it kind of, Largely hinged on did Ochai make four or five in a game? If he did, you had a pretty decent night as a team. If he didn't, it was usually not a good night. So, um, I don't think, based on the pieces that they've added, I don't think that they'll be reliant on one guy to get hot or stay hot from behind three point range, um, moving forward. So I, I think, you know, you would ask him on March 30th if, if he was gonna, if he thought he was gonna add 10 players. I think he might have said, "Whoa, that's a lot." You know, let's let tap the brakes there. But I, I doubt he would have been surprised if uh, if someone told him then that he was going to add seven or eight. I mean, I just think that that's you 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 can't improve your roster, you can't get better um, without you know bringing in some new new blood. And and um, obviously, you can develop guys. I guess that's another way you can do it. But I think the writing was on the wall at that point. So I, I think. I don't know how often he thinks about those comments. My guess would be never. I don't think he probably even laughs at them. I think he he, uh, he he may have even forgotten that he said that. But I think his plan, pretty quickly, when the off arrived, was was to to go out and revamp the roster, and and they've done it in spades. Man, it's a totally different looking team with the idea that you could still have four starters returning. So to to have all these new faces and blend it with with the a, core group that started a bunch of games for you, that's uh, that's unique. I don't know that we'll ever see anything like that again, and, and it doesn't happen very often even in today's world with the transfer portal. That's just uh, so rare to have that kind of experience mixed with so many new faces.
2: Well, I feel like specifically with shooting, it's probably easier to go out and enhance your shooting from the transfer portal than it would be from high school guys. First off, there's just more of them. Second off, they've proven it They've proven they can do it at that level, whereas with high school guys, you could say he projects to be a good shooter, but it's impossible to know what that transition is going to be like for a lot of those kids. And if you are looking to get more shooters, which, I mean, every team's always looking to add shooters, the transfer portal seemingly feels like it's going to be the go-to spot to get that done.
3: Oh, there's no question. I, I mean, I, you know, coaches don't like it because you have to re-recruit your guys every year, and, and I understand what what they're saying about why it's not a good rule, and, and Self has said himself that doesn't like it as a rule. But as long as it's the rule, as long as it's the the, the price of doing business and what everybody's going to do or able to do or, or going to have to do, you, you got to get on board. You got to open your arms and embrace it. And and he obviously has done that very quickly. Um, and, and 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 I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that. Bryce Thompson's a great example of that, right? I mean, Bryce wasn't a knockdown, you know, Steph Curry-type shooter in high school, but he was a scorer, and he was a sh- he was a guy who could get hot and go for 20 plus and, and And maybe he still is that. I don't know, but he certainly wasn't that in year one at Kansas. He didn't at any point show you that he was real comfortable with his jump shot. He didn't at any point show you that, that he was, you know, really going to get hot or – or have a, a a stretch or or a sustained few weeks where where he was going to look like you know the ball was going into the ocean and he was going to make everything he shot. I mean, he he never had that. I don't even remember his total uh, his final numbers, but wasn't he in the thirties for his for his field goal percentage for the season? I mean, so not trying to pile on him by any means, but he's a great example of what you were just talking about. It you can land a five star guy who is known as a scorer. And when he gets to your place and you plug him into your lineup, he could go shoot 30% for a season. So, yeah, I think it's a lot more reliable to look at the portal and say, well, this guy's done it two years at this level. Or or this guy's done it four years at this level. Or whatever the case may be. I think it's something that I understand why they don't like it. But I also also think that, uh, that there's a... A real good chance that they're going to get comfortable with it in a hurry. Yeah, man. And, Do you and believe it though? Do you believe? Like
2: it. Do you believe that they really don't like it? I, I,
3: I, I yes and no, yes and no. Right, like they don't like it because of what I said. You know, if 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 let's let's keep on the Bryce Thompson train. Let's. I mean what. But if they wanted to keep that guy, they would have had to go re-recruit him all over again and put all that effort into just keeping a guy that you already spent four years recruiting. And and in order to do that, you know, you have advantages that allow you to do that. He's already on your roster. He's a part of your program. He's a part of your university. You know, you can talk to him anytime you want. There's no restriction on it. But you still have to put the time in. You still have to that, – that, that, takes, that takes time and man hours and effort that, that could be spent – on a kid in the uh, junior class or the sophomore class and, and, you know, building relationships and recruitment for for the future of your program. So I think, yes, they really don't like it because that doesn't seem like something that any of these coaches want to do. I already got this guy. I spent five years of my life watching him play, chasing him around, talking to his parents, telling him how great he is, loving him up and convincing him to come to my place and he did and now i got to do it again and if it doesn't go well this year i got to do it again after that i mean that's why they don't like it but the idea of having options and the versatility and and being able to say hey gosh i sure need another ball handler well there's one well there's another one there's another one i mean there's no way they don't like that part of it but but overall i think you know you have to decide is 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 the good does it outweigh the bad? And and maybe it does in some cases. Maybe it doesn't. But but I do think I think it's fair to to, to understand that, that they don't love it. But there are parts of it they like, and there are parts of it they don't like.
2: Why wouldn't you just stop going after high school kids altogether?
3: I mean, it's, I think I, we'll see that.
2: I know it sounds crazy. I, I know Fran Frischilla tweeted it out uh, yesterday that he talked to uh, a high major coach who said we're done. We're done recruiting high school kids. I mean, everything you just said, you're you're totally right. These guys don't want to put hours and hours and hours into recruiting these kids only to have them leave a year later and they have to replace them. And they say, what, what did I waste all that time on? So don't Right? just go after transfer portal kids every year.
3: I think we'll see that. Yeah. I think that, I think the top 25 to 40, maybe 50 uh, high school prospects in every class will continue to get looked at. And, you know, there's going to be those Josh Jackson, Andrew Wiggins type of players that, you know, people are going to want those guys. They're future pros, they're future lottery picks, that kind of thing. I mean, you'll take that guy and you'll put a little time into it. But, um, but but yeah, overall, I, I think that a lot of these coaches, as long as the rules remain the way they are today, I think they'll start to look at it and say, geez, I, I, I'm going to go see if I can grab this uh, – this player in the mid-major ranks, who's already played three years and still has a couple years left, and you know what? I mean, I just saw a tweet just now from 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 uh, John Rothstein, uh, the CBS Sports college basketball insider, and and he he had it was just a tweet, but it said sources you know have, are telling him that there are a lot of mid-major coaches that are uh, that are not interested in scheduling high major programs moving forward because they do not want to give them the free scout on their players and their roster and in-person look at, Hey, that guy looks pretty nice. I might try to get him at the end of the year. And, and, you know, it doesn't mean it'll go away by any means, but, but, but it's very interesting um, the, the ramifications that all of this has. I mean, you, you know, you're talking about a serious, serious gap there Then if, if, if all of a sudden, KU's schedule is let's say that holds let's say that keeps across the mid major world and and none of those programs go play big programs again. Now, money will money will factor into that eventually and so it may not be able to be a full a full sweep like that, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on. But doesn't it work All both ways?
2: Sudden, doesn't it work? I mean, think about what happened to KU. Yeah, they plucked a guy from from Drake, right? They go out and they get right. Remy Martin who's going to transfer no matter what, so that's a little bit different. Uh, I, I look at the flip side of it. You lost Jethro Muscadin who winds up at New Mexico, right? You lose Tyon Grant Foster. Where'd he go? DePaul? Yep. So it's not as if KU's taking all... Or these these Blue Bloods are taking all these, these mid-major kids and not giving anything back. Like, it does seem to be an exchange, and I don't know if it's a one-for-one exchange, but when... The blue bloods are taking these kids from mid majors. That means you're displacing blue blood kids who probably want to go somewhere where they can play a lot.
3: Yeah. Oh, there's no doubt. Yeah. There's there's absolutely no doubt that it seems that way, right? But if these, I mean, it, it, it's it's still it's still a situation where if if these coaches really, I mean, it, it, it's kind of the conversation we just had, right? Like, who the Drake coach spent how much time. Recruiting Joseph Yusefu and got him. Put a lot of time into him. Found a nice diamond in the rough type of player that mm-hmm. wasn't getting a ton of looks by the by the Power Five type conferences, and and ended up getting him. And probably spent three years to do it, and then got two years out of him. And now, wow! All of a sudden, I lost him, and I gotta I gotta go find a way to replace him. And and you know, even the Eastern Washington. You know, situation with the the Groves brothers going to Oklahoma, leaving that program. I mean, their coach left, so that's that's a whole different thing in and of itself. But but I just think it, it, it does come back to that too. You know, it's it's like these mid major coaches are putting in the same amount; they're just getting different kids. And so, I'm not at all surprised that they're not interested in, in showing up at your place in a game that they're going to be a double digit underdog and giving you a clean. Out and and roster evaluation and and look at, at their players that you might come and take from them after they spent five years trying to get them and, and develop them. I mean, I, you know, and and no one's crying for anyone here. I don't think it. I don't. I think it's just the the the, the reality of the situation now. You know, I mean, it, this is the new era of college basketball and college basketball recruiting, and the, these these high major type coaches are adjusting to it, and so these mid majors, if, if Rothstein's uh report, you know, turns out to be to be true and have legs and be something that actually becomes a thing, um, you know, then, then those mid major coaches are doing their same thing. They're adjusting in the way that they can adjust. And so it just i it, it it I don't know that it makes it real messy. I, I I'm not certainly not, you know, trying to sound like I'm worked up about it. I I think it's interesting. I think it's it's kind of fascinating to something different and to cover it in a different way and all that. But but I don't think that you know I don't think it's going to be real comfortable for anybody for quite a while. I mean, um you know, because just think about the kid, right? The kid who ends up at a mid major program. Well he shows up as a freshman. He wasn't very highly recruited. He goes for 14 a game, his sophomore year. He blows up. He averages 23 a game. He's not thinking about coming back to his mid-major program for his junior season. Where, gosh, I hope I can, I hope I can uh, score 25 a game, and maybe we can win that first round NCAA tournament. Now, you know, he's thinking, I'm 20 points a game. Which coach wants me? Who, who needs me? And, you know, and and so again. I'm not worked up about it. I don't. I don't care what they do. I think it's fascinating, though. But it, but the the layers and the levels that this this has an impact are are just incredible. I mean, it it goes way beyond just coaches and and the way they have to hold and 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 do their business. You know, it it affects the kids. It affects recruiting. It affects the parents. It affects. Um, you know, least of all we've talked about is the, uh, academic side of this thing. This is going to create a, an entirely new, um, I, I don't know, evaluation or, or gauge for academics. I would think because a huge, huge part of the APR stuff, which KU always performed very well in, and, and, you know, the APR is. Is, is something that you want to do well in or you face consequences and penalties and you could lose your postseason right um, a big part of that APR thing is tied to retention and and eligibility um, upon retention and, and so you know how does that factor in now if kids can just kind of cruise around like free agency so uh, you know, I, I don't know, man. The, the NCAA has got enough headaches and enough things to scratch their head about, and here's another one. So uh, I think it's a, it, it's it's really going to be fascinating to watch how it all kind of unfolds and smooths out and becomes a a, a a thing that people can can calmly navigate. Right now, it's a little bit pants on fire and people trying to trying to figure it out on the fly.
2: He's Matt Tate. You can check out all of his work, kusports.com, in the Lawrence Turner world. Appreciate it, as always, Matt. Thank you, man. All
3: right. Thank you. We'll talk to you guys soon.
2: All righty. Thank you. That is Matt Tate with Eric Johnson. I'm Nick Schwartz. You're listening to Rock Chuck Sports Talk. Father's Day is just around the corner, and you probably need a gift for a hairy dad. Make your dad proud this year and get him and yourself the Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, the Lawnmower 4.0. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. Have you ever seen a nose bush sticking out of your dad's nose? Of course you have. Well, that's probably a sign of another bush somewhere on his body. Fortunately for you, Manscaped can take care of all of those problems. The Weed Whacker Nose and Ear Trimmer is the best nose hair trimmer on the market and the perfect gift for your pops. Manscaped is also the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming, and they just launched the Lawnmower 4.0. Imagine surprising your dad with a sleek, well-designed, and optimized body hair trimmer that says your balls will thank you on the box. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code RCST at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com when you use the code RCST. Don't forget that you came from your dad's balls. This year, show your original home some love with Manscaped. Talk some Big 12 hoops and football with Kevin. But before we do that, it's time to answer the age-old question. Do we give a bleep? You know, I had a, I had a buddy once who always would say, Oh, did you, you see what so-and-so said? Like, did you see what Skip Bayless said? And I'd say, no, I didn't, man. And honestly, like, I don't care. Well, it's just so stupid. He just said he thinks that him Tim Tebow is going to be a pro bowler or a tight end. It's just dumb. It's dumb, dude. I go, yeah, I know. I just don't care, man. And that's the lesson we try to teach in this segment. Not every story deserves your attention. It's not always your turn to give a bleep. So let's go through. Some of the headlines from this past weekend and uh, determine whether or not we should be
0: giving our bleeps. First up, Aaron Rodgers went on ESPN last night. It was uh, Kenny Mayne's final show with ESPN. He was living out his contract. And, you know, he didn't really want to talk about some of the trade stuff, but Kenny Mayne kind of kept poking at him. um, And eventually did crack open, I don't know, maybe a little bit of a story insight into why he's requesting a trade.
1: Do you find it strange that the people have been sort of conditioned to believe management is always right? Like like the player's a bad guy because he stands up for himself. Management must be right because the loyalty to the team is paramount. And then someone like you, others, Richard Sherman, have kind of voiced that opinion like, Hey, I, I'm, a, I'm a worker. I work for myself and my family, so I'm going to stick up for myself in whatever situation it is. God, that was a serious question. <laughs> That was a good question. You know, I think I think sometimes people forget uh, what really makes an organization. And, uh, you know, history is important. Uh, you know, legacy of so many uh, people who've come before you. But the people, that's the most important thing. The people make an organization. People make a business. Um, and sometimes uh, that gets forgotten. You know, culture is built brick by brick the foundation of it by the people you know not by the not by the organization not by the building not by the the corporation it's built by the people and i've been fortunate enough to play with a number of amazing amazing people and got to work for some amazing people as well and it's those people that build the foundation of those entities and i think sometimes we forget that you know uh, Are you demanding a uh, trade? With with, yeah, with my situation, look, it's it's never been about uh, you know, never been about the draft pick, uh, picking Jordan. I love Jordan; he's a great kid. Um, you know, he, he' a lot of fun to to work together. Uh, I love coaching staff. Love my teammates. You know, love the fan base in Green Bay. It's incredible, incredible. Sixteen years. It's just kind of about a, a, a philosophy, you know, and and maybe forgetting that it is about the people that make the thing go. It's about, it's about character. It's about culture. It's about doing things the right way. And
2: Okay. So a lot there. Um, first off, I, there's no way he's telling the truth about it not being about Jordan. It, it, I think his answer in that is that it's not about him personally. It's not about, yeah. He, he's not like, I don't hate it's not Jordan. Like he's an enemy. Yeah. It's what he represents. It represents like what he spoke to there is that there's a, it's the, the really poor philosophy in how to construct a roster when you have uh, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time still playing at an incredibly high level on your team. That's what it is. So I don't disagree. It's not about Matt LaFleur electing to kick the field goal at the end of the game against the Bucks in the NFC Championship game. It's about the fact that in that game, you had Tom Brady at age 43 and an organization who in year one did everything they possibly could to put him in the best position to succeed. They went out, got Tom Brady, and said, now how can we assemble the best roster to make life for Tom Brady as easy as possible? That has at no point in his 16-year career been the case for Aaron Rodgers and Green Bay. At no point have they said, let's just give him a ton of weapons, let's spend a ton of money on the offensive line, and see what he's capable of and that's got to be
0: really frustrating. Yes and no. I mean they had like one of the I think they had the highest rated offensive line last year. Um sure. They're not spending first round picks on receivers, but like you could list off the receivers he's had in his career. Donald Driver, Greg Jennings, um Jordy Nelson, Devontae Adams, Randall Cobb, like they've had they've had like solid receivers. So I I don't know. I, I think it is a little overblown. To me, this does kind of ring true of more so being the Jordan Love thing and more so being the idea that he's not gonna get the opportunity to have the Tom Brady treatment um before Tom kind of I don't know, got the boot out of New England. Okay,
2: boot, aside but... from dissecting what he's really saying there, that it's still like let's get to the point of it. He wants out. Yeah. And that's as clear of an indication as he could possibly put out there. Like, I just don't see eye-to-eye eye with this organization. I want mm-hmm. out. He's in Hawaii right now, I think, with his girlfriend, actress, Shailene Woodley. Um, OTAs started. Uh, he didn't report because he's in Hawaii and doing uh, interviews. And I think that was telling, too, that he's going to do an interview with Kenny
0: Main on the day he didn't report to OTAs. Mm-hmm. Now, they're
2: OTAs, so he doesn't have to be there. And he's
0: Aaron Rodgers. No, but it's just funny. The team, like, reaches out and they're like, are you going to come to OTAs? He's like, sorry, I'm busy. He's in Hawaii getting ripped and yeah. talking to Kenny Main. <laughs> But the important
2: question, do you give a belief? Yes, because this okay. furthers my belief that he's not going to be in
0: Green Bay to start the season. Um, I don't really give a belief about this specific instance, but I get a give a belief about what it means, right? Yeah, I, I yeah, agree. Okay. I agree with okay. that. Brooks Kepka, speaking of people not liking other people, unlike Aaron Rodgers. He doesn't give a belief about anything. Jordan Love. Yeah, Brooks Kepka might actually give a belief about something, and his name is Bryson DeChambeau. But it's not giving a bleep in a positive way. It's giving a bleep in a negative way. Did you see this? Uh, it got posted last night, but it would have had to happen on Sunday.
2: Yeah, so I did not see it live. There's no way it played live. So somebody who works for Golf Channel. Had to be somebody in the production. Who said, yeah. I need to release this footage. Because that was not on air. And you'll see why it didn't make it to air. Here is the clip of an of a post round interview. This was... I don't know what day it was. I don't know if it was. It had to have been Sunday after the tournament, right? No, because he wasn't wearing his Sunday clothes. Oh, okay. Brooks was wearing like a pink shirt on Sunday, and in this clip, he's wearing a, a white shirt. So, Friday or Saturday is my guess.
0: Golf course was asking a lot from you today, Brooks. What were you able to do well and put up
1: that nice number? Just ball struck my way around this place. Uh, didn't putt well, but I don't think many guys are going to putt well with this wind. It's it's very tough. I don't like I said. I don't know what other guys have said or.
4: I just felt it difficult to read. You know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, um, I lost my train of thought, yeah, hearing that bull
0: all right, <laughs> we're going to enjoy that in the TV compound.
4: I honestly wouldn't even care.
2: So he doesn't give a bleep if they share the footage, which they did. Um, I think what he's referring to there is, because everybody was like, what did Bryson say? Like, there's this video, and Bryson just walks in the background. The video is better than the audio because you see the eye roll and the just, like, ugh, like that sort of look. I don't think Bryson said anything. I think it was the sound of the click-clack of his metal spikes on the concrete. Because Bryson DeChambeau wears metal spikes and he is to my knowledge the only player on tour who wears metal spikes most of the other guys just wear those rubber spikes Mm -hmm. you would contend that Bryson says that he has to wear the metal spikes because when you swing as hard as he does you need the metal spikes to stay grounded the the (laughs) irony in that is he doesn't he comes off the air basically if you watch the slow-mo of his swing like his feet come off the ground and Bryson is aware of it. He, like, commented uh, below, like, some Instagram video saying, quote, you know you can fix spike marks now with the laughing, crying emoji. I just love in a sport where the PGA Tour tries so hard to suffocate anything interesting. Like, you can't criticize the PGA. You can't criticize the course. You can't criticize the officials. You can't criticize other players. Like, they hate all of that. They want it to be a game of gentlemen and let's just all get along, right? You're not battling against him, you're battling against the course. That this guy, Brooks Kepka, does not care whatsoever to air out whatever grievances he has with one of the guys who's becoming one of the most popular players on tour. It's awesome. Yeah. But I want it to intensify. I need it to I need
0: I need it to I need it to come to blows on a practice screen. That's the thing. Like, I don't really give a bleep that this is a thing, but I don't like You know, I'm not going to sit here, too, like the PGA might and go, oh, this is bad. I just want this to boil into a point where they are playing one and two at some sort of event, and they have to get paired together because the PGA is probably not going to pair them together as, like, the opening pairing or something. They have control of that. They don't want that to happen. But if you get them one and two, these two guys who obviously dislike each other and they have to play around together with the winner possibly winning that event... That is what I want to see, and if that ends up happening, then I do give a bleep about this just because, like, it's a it's a footnote into that competition if that happens. But, like, this event itself, no, I don't really give no, a bleep. No, no, it's, just, no. it's funny. It's yeah,
2: funny. I, I just, I want it to, and to, I hope this is the start of something bigger, because you're right. All we need is for them to play well enough to be paired together on a Sunday. Like, that's the beauty. Is like, for them to be paired together on Sunday of the U.S. Open, how awesome would that be? I think, unfortunately, Brooks is the one who's often instigating this. I think he gets more annoyed with Bryson than the other way around. So uh, he needs to be careful because that was what will happen. They'll get to a Sunday. Bryson will be doing his analytical things. He'll be talking a lot. He'll be pacing. He'll be he'll be taking forever, and Brooks is going to get fed up for that. And I think that if it did happen on the course, things would tend to favor Bryson. But if it if it came to like a fight, man. Gosh, that would be great. They always there's no place for that in sports. How about one time? We've there's never been a fight Bob that Barker I can remember. Bob Barker and Happy Gilmore, right? That's the last fight we've seen on tour. So if it's one fight every 25 years, is it really that
0: big of a deal? I don't think so. Yeah, as long as nobody like pulls out like a golf club, that'd be bad. Okay, uh, how about this story? A missing fisherman, who he's 69 years old. He survived 17 nights in the Oregon wilderness alone after he was missing. His wife reported him missing. He was supposed to come home. And then 17 days later, they finally found him. He kind of left like a, a trail of food and stuff for them to help find him. I don't really know why he went missing or how he went missing. But how many days would you survive in the wilderness and do you give a bleep about this?
2: I do give a bleep. I mean, it's one thing to survive for 17 days. That's a long time. It's another thing to do it when you're 69 years old. So he probably thought, like, this is it. But this is and crazy. I don't know how secluded like, is he. Like, how secluded is? Apparently, if it's 17 days and nobody found
0: it, you must be yeah. way the it hell out there. Has to be in the there. wilderness. Well, I mean, obviously, this was not the wilderness of Oregon, but he has to live out kind of in the boonies and the trees somewhere or something. And and get this, like, he didn't he didn't just like, oh, I just found some water and just kind of hung out for two weeks and just hoped somebody found me. He built himself a makeshift shelter.
2: Well, you'd have to. You're in Oregon. You're on the coast. It's probably raining a ton. It probably gets cold at night because that's the thing. Yes, this is the good time of year for it to happen, but I would assume in Oregon this time of year, it's still getting down to the 50s and 40s at nighttime, so you're probably freezing. If it's raining, it's that much worse. Now you've got wet socks, wet underwear. You're getting even colder than that. Oh, that'd be scary. 17 days? No, I wouldn't survive for 17 What's your days. under well, I just don't know how he had I, some
0: food left. Right.
2: Well, I just wouldn't be able to. I wouldn't know the first thing about. I guess he's on a fishing trip. So, I mean, if you went fishing, if you went fishing and caught some fish, that's a great start. But Still can you a fire? Yeah, if you can start a fire and catch some it. fish, then you're then I'm fine. Mm-hmm. If I, if but I do, you know how to fillet a fish? I could figure that out. Okay. I could figure that out. I know the skin one side. I, I, I'll just I'll pick out the bone. The okay, end, yeah, okay. just yeah, figure it out. It know? won't
0: be. It won't be perfect, but it'll be doable. Exactly, um, it'll be edible. I don't know about water. Could you uh, do one week.
2: Again, I don't know how to start a fire though. Yeah. Do I have a lighter? Do I have matches? I don't think it's gonna help. Well, maybe. I could. I mean, I would. If I, I get the twigs, you know, you, you put them in a like a triangle teepee sort That's of the cone. the I don't know if
0: you're going to be able get to do that. Get
2: some What Some tender, I mean, what? What do you mean? Why? Just I mean, you're not just going to like light a match and
0: put it on a log and it's going to just blow up. I understand
2: up. that. You need tender. So I would get, I would try to find something, you know, straw or uh, a newspaper if I had some. You know, you just have to be resourceful. I, I bet I would last longer than you. No, disagree.
0: You have no outdoorsman to yourself. I bet you I fish more often than you.
2: I don't ever fish.
0: Okay, so there... But given this scenario, I'm on column. a fishing trip. Um, I don't think either of us were in the Boy Scouts. No, but I...
2: I hunter Safety.
0: <laughs> you took Hunter Safety? Yeah. Well, there's no guns or I've, anything. I've so. killed an animal. With your bare hands?
2: No. What'd you kill? That'd be intense, though. would you kill, like a rabbit? What's the biggest thing you've ever killed with your bare hands?
0: Uh, Besides a human? No, I'm mm. just kidding. Don't get yourself in trouble. Yeah.
2: Uh, I do give a bleep. Okay. Good for this guy. Uh, yeah. Made it hell of a lot longer than I would have.
0: Okay, last story. Guy Fieri is getting absolutely paid. The Food Network is reaching a three-year extension with Guy Fieri for $80 million. Do you give a bleep? Wow. So he's getting, like, when he shows up to Raiders practices, because he's a big Raiders fan, and he sees John Gruden... Like he is a bigger celebrity and he makes more money than John Gruden. Think about that. What does that come out to annually? It's like twenty seven million dollars a year,
2: just under that. Well, he's got a million shows. It's not like he's just doing one show.
0: Yeah, everybody knows Guy's Grocery uh, or not Guy's Grocery. Diners Drive In Diners Drive Ins and, dives. and Drives. My favorite is Guy's Grocery Games. I think those are the that? only
2: two I think those are the only two he's got going right now. Um you know he gets a bad rep. What do you but- mean? How does he get a bad rap? I think like the the like like the uh, Anthony Bourdain, you remember him? Uh uh-huh. huh. He, he died. Like those guys always hated Guy Fieri because they just said he was terrible uh, okay. for like the food community. But he does so much philanthropic and charitable work. Like he's going out and like when there, there's a wildfire in California, he'll go out there and like set up a barbecue and feed everybody. Yeah, I could and I could stuff.
0: see that where it's like the the fine art of cultural dining and stuff like that like they're like oh this guy's just you know he's he's going to dives he's not going to five star restaurants so I, I can see why that would brush people back I'm, I'm sure it's similar to like if you were in the classical music world and then all of a sudden they come out with the, some new invented music whether it's like you know rap or pop or whatever mm-hmm. and you're like wow that music sucks compared to this like you're kind of on your high horse about it yeah and you know I love Guy Fieri
2: yeah, I'll tell you what. I I like him, too. Huge sports fan. Great social media follow. Great meme game. Great meme game. I doubt he's doing it. I doubt he's the one doing the photoshops, but uh, great follow on Twitter and Instagram. All right. That's Do We Give a Bleep. He's Derek Johnson. I'm Nick Schwert. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I think it's an interesting debate as to which Big 12 team improved the most this offseason. It's not over, so we don't know what the finished product is going to look like for a lot of these teams. There's still a lot of offseason left to go through, but teams went about overhauling their roster in, in different ways. And in the case of Texas, it's not just a roster overhaul. It's a coaching staff overhaul. Kevin Flaherty of 24/7 Sports joins us now on the show. What say you, Kevin, which Big 12 basketball team improved the most so far this offseason?
4: So I think think it's Kansas, but I I need to hedge by saying the reason I say that is because I think when you look at the past and you look at the expectations for one-year transfers, so often one-year transfers fail to live up to what they did at their previous stop. And a lot of times when you count on one-year transfers to, to come in, play immediately, and be sort of the star that carries your team, uh, I think that you, you've seen a lot of players fail in, in that regard. And so the reason that I like what Kansas did was I think when you look at what Kansas returns as well, You know, when you look at Jalen Wilson probably coming back, you look at David McCormick coming back. You know, Ochai Abadji is a coin flip, it sounds like, in terms of coming back, in which case they'd have to do some different things. But Remy Martin was one of the top couple transfers in the transfer portal in general. Some people had him all the way at number one. But the thing, and I know we've talked about it, Nick, you, myself, and Derek, I think the thing that's different about this is Kansas isn't going to depend on Remy Martin to go out and score 19 points a game in order for Kansas to be good. That doesn't mean that, that he can't score. It doesn't mean that he's not going to be asked to score some. But when you look at, at say, Bart Torvich, for instance, which projects production for everybody coming in, they have Remy Martin averaging a 13-3. and three. And... Something like that at the point guard spot, when you look at what Martin's going to add really does make Kansas a lot better. And I think that when you look at Joseph Yesufu and what he brings in, the explosive athleticism and everything, you're not asking him to come in and average, you know, 23 points a game or or whatever it was. I think he averaged over the final, you know, nine games of last season. You aren't asking him to carry the team. And, And so I think Kansas has helped itself the most. I think that when you look at at a team like Texas that's having, you know, almost an entire roster overhaul, where you get in trouble there is, yes, Texas has done terrifically well in the transfer market, but at the same time you're having a guy like Timmy Allen from Utah coming in and you're expecting him to be the Timmy Allen that he was at Utah. Otherwise your team isn't going to be as good.
2: Yeah, I wonder, though, with it being Chris Beard, right? It's not just Shaka Smart goes out and gets all these guys. It's Chris Beard sort of having the opportunity to not necessarily start from scratch, but to say, if I'm going to come in and coach a bunch of guys that I've never coached to begin with, why not go out and do what everybody else is doing, which is, you know, pluck the types of players that I want to be a part of this program. Now, we'll see what the fit looks like once they actually get it going. But the fact that it's a new coaching staff that's doing it in Texas, does that maybe give you a little bit more optimism that it'll work out?
4: I don't know if that does. The fact that Chris Beard has had success with one of your transfers in the past, I think more is something that more sticks out in terms of why it could be positive for Texas. I think when you look at, at Eric Musselman at Arkansas and you look at Chris Beard, you know, I think those two are, are arguably the best in college basketball at, at finding those guys that that fit, that can plug in right away, and that they can have success with as, you know, immediate one-year transfer types of guys. And yet, at the, at the same time, you know, yes, Texas does return Courtney Ramey, it looks like, but... You're going to be asking so much of, of all those different guys. You know, they aren't they aren't going to come in to to play a role. You know, Baylor is going to have a pretty good roster around James Akinjo. Akinjo isn't going to have to carry Baylor in order for Baylor to be good this year. But if you look at Texas, you know, Timmy Allen, Dylan Dissu, you know. They needed help at point guard and went out and got Devin Askew, who, of course, had a, an up and down year this past year at, at Kentucky. You know, you're, Christian Bishop being another guy there, you know, you're asking all those guys to basically carry roles the size of, if not bigger, than what they were carrying at their previous stops. And, and I think that that's, that's going to be really tough to for them to do. You, you just don't see that happen that often. I mean, think Nick about, you know, the last several guys who have been one year transfers that everybody said, Oh, this guy is a, is a no doubt. You know, Reed Travis was so productive at Stanford and went to Kentucky and was on everybody's preseason first team all American. And I say that as somebody who put Reed Travis on my first team all American that year. And he wound up not being one of Kentucky's primary options, despite the fact that heading into that season, nobody on Kentucky's roster could touch what he had done before that. You know, you look at Kerry Blackshear Jr. When he went from Virginia Tech to Florida, people said, my gosh, this is the one piece that Florida was missing. They go and get a center who was playing at an all-ACC level the previous year. Well, Kerry Blackshear didn't play at that level at Florida. And so I think that's – The tough thing, I'm not going to say that every single one-year transfer, especially with as many of them as there are this year, you know, there's going to be more of those guys, I think, who find success. But previously speaking, those guys haven't been as good at their next stop as what they were before that.
2: If I gave you all the transfers that are coming into the Big 12, and you mentioned several of them, a lot of them are at Texas, Uh, James Akinjo Baylor will probably say Remy Martin, the only one from Kansas. If I gave you like the top three or four, however many transfers you wanted to take versus everybody else, so everybody else who's returning or even incoming freshmen, do you think it's more likely that a new Big 12 player wins Big 12 player of the year or will it be somebody who actually played in the Big 12 last year?
4: I think that it's going to be somebody who played in the Big 12 last year because I think it's probably going to be more likely to be somebody like a Matthew Meyer, you know, at Baylor if if he does come back as expected or an Adam Flagler at Baylor as opposed to somebody like a Ken Joe. I think that when you look at Oklahoma State and what a nice addition for them Bryce Thompson was and, And the type of role that he's going to play there, I still think Avery Anderson is the guy that's going to carry that team and scoring on a night to night basis. And, you know, I think that when you look at everybody across the Big 12, yes, Remy Martin is going to get preseason, you know, all Big 12 mention. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And he, he may play at a preseason all Big 12 level, but I don't think that he's going to play at the type of level to put up the numbers that we've seen from. From previous Big 12 players of the year. You know, you might even say that David McCormick has a better chance to do that. And and if, and if somebody like, you know, Deuce McBride returns to West Virginia, which is, you know, supposedly a very real possibility, you know, you're looking at a situation there where, you know, you're, you're probably going to have an all conference type of guy that, that is going to be carrying a load that has done it before. And, And so I do think that I would probably go with the guys coming back.
2: Deuce McBride would be up near the top of the list if he came back, but do you really expect him to be back next year?
4: You know, it, it's, it's funny, Nick. Uh, talking to our West Virginia publisher, I, I didn't think so before I talked to him. Uh, but he, he had said all the way through that, uh, that hey, this is, a, this is a guy that's going to go out and test the waters. The staff expects him back. You know, he's given indications that, that he'll probably come back. And, and so if he does, obviously, that would uh, that would put him, you know, if not 1A in that discussion, he would certainly be at or near the top. And, and I think, too, you know, Avery Anderson is, is sort of an interesting guy to circle there just because of what he did, you know, when the onus wasn't on Cade Cunningham. And so I would be a little bit worried – if Anderson was only producing that way when he shared the court with Kate Cunningham, but in the games that Kate Cunningham went out, you know, Avery Anderson was terrific. And so I wouldn't be a bit surprised to see him, you know, see just a monster uptick in his production either.
2: The one pause I get, and I get that I'm probably a little bit biased here, but, When you look at the production that Remy Martin had and the way that he was allowed to play, where it's basically, we don't have much talent on this team, so give Remy the ball, take as many bad shots as you want. It was sort of a stat accruing type season, and obviously he's not going to be able to play like that at Kansas, which you could use as a negative and say, well, he's not going to put up those same numbers, but he's also going to have a lot more talent around him and other shot makers and other guys who can make life easier on him where defenses can't just zero in on him every single game. So where I could see the maybe the the raw numbers going down a little bit, but if the efficiency goes up and he's on the number one team in the Big 12 or the, the, the first or second best team in the Big 12, I just think it'd be really hard to put anybody ahead of him, at least on paper, right now. If I'm if I'm heading into the season and sort of power ranking it,
4: sure. I, I think my issue with it, Nick, is just you usually see the production numbers out of the Big Twelve Player of the Year, and, and not that you won't have those, but I'm not sure that media members, the coaches, that they've come around on the on the whole efficiency thing. You know, and, and one of the reasons that that makes me say that is. You know, you look at the comparison that we talked about on this very show between Derek Culver, who really struggled in Big 12 play last year, and David McCormick. When you looked at how they played in conference, there really wasn't a comparison. You know, David McCormick, you know, saw the giant ramp up in his production and his efficiency, et cetera. And Culver, you know, he put up some good counting numbers, but really wasn't very efficient at all. And and quite frankly, you know, put himself in, into certain situations where the West Virginia staff wasn't even happy with the way that he was playing, and yet you look at who won the spot, you know, on the All Big 12 team. It was Culver, and so I, I think that Martin has a chance to to really help his NBA stock by having an efficient season. You know, by by taking better shots. You know, he's somebody that that shot really well in catch and shoot opportunities. And I'm not sure that he had as much of a chance to do that at Arizona State as he's going to have at Kansas where, you know, you get the ball into the paint, you start the scramble drill. Think about how many times last year Marcus Garrett and Dewan Harris were catching the ball, you know, in catch-and-shoot situations, and they didn't always take that shot, but it was there. And so I think Martin is going to be a more efficient player. I just look at, you know, the the last time, you know, Kansas had a, a point guard win Big 12 Player of the Year was Devontae Graham, and you look at the counting numbers that he put up, the number of assists, the number of points, etc. I just don't know that I see Remy Martin producing at that level.
2: Is there a team in the Big 12 that got hurt worse than others with the transfer portal? We focus so much on the teams that benefit from it, but is there a team that you felt like um, really got screwed by it?
4: You know, it's tough to say. I don't know that anybody got, you know, just just super banged up with it. Generally speaking, you know, you had like-as-like like replacements. I mean, you could maybe look at at Oklahoma, you know, losing Davion Harmon and Brady Manick going to North Carolina. But at the same time, you know, while they aren't going to have a like-as-like like replacement for Harmon, uh, I think that... You know Jordan Goldwire is going to come in. He's going to be able to handle the defensive duties there. You know they arguably got you know to be just as good, if not better, at the fourth spot. And so I think most teams generally what they put out, they they kind of got back. So there were some teams that that had success. Some teams that quietly had success. You know TCU kind of quietly had a nice little transfer class themselves that, that nobody's going to. To really talk about, but they got some experience in the backcourt and, and added, you know, Micah Peavy, who showed some things at Texas Tech. You know, and, and so when you look at, at all of those different things, I, I'm not sure anybody really lost, per se, but maybe some teams came out roughly even to, to what they were before.
2: Talking to Kevin Flaherty, 24-7 Sports here on Rock Chuck Sports Talk. Let's switch gears and talk football. Uh, same sort of question. Is there an obvious candidate for Big Twelve Player of the Year in football in your mind?
4: Uh, I think the most obvious one would would probably be Spencer Rattler. You know, if Oklahoma has the year that that so many people are projecting, uh, and you know Rattler is putting himself into position to be a top five, you know, type quarterback in the draft, I, I think that he's the one that really jumps out. There, there are some fun under the radar guys, though. I think you know you look at if Texas has a big season. Under Steve Sarkeesian, you know, Bijan Robinson's probably going to be a pretty big reason why and should get the ball a whole bunch. You know, I think when you look at across the conference, I don't know that Deuce Vaughn is going to get the ball enough, even if K-State has a big year. If Texas Tech, they took about 8 billion transfers this year, Nick, which is part of the reason their, their 2022 recruiting class is non existent but they took so many transfers and one of them was a transfer from Oregon, Tyler Shuck. And if Texas Tech's transfers pan out, they wind up winning, say, eight games or something. Shuck is getting a little bit of love as a possible top-ten pick if everything comes through because he's a big kid who can really throw the ball. If Texas Tech makes that kind of leap from where they were at, I think Shuck would be a, sort of an interesting candidate in there as well. And and You always know that you know, whoever the Texas quarterback is, if Texas does have a big year, they're going to be in that discussion. Iowa State is really fascinating to me, though, Nick, because I think those guys may kind of siphon votes from each other if they all have the kinds of seasons that they're possible of. You know, if Brock Purdy becomes the guy that people really liked for the NFL draft heading into last year, you know, maybe he's getting some of that attention and some of those votes for – for Big 12 players a year, and, and yet at the same time, there's a pretty easy scenario where you would look at it and, and kind of circle Brees Hall in that role yeah. as well. I
2: mean, Brees Hall finished, what, uh sixth in Heisman votes, I believe, last year? I'm thinking about this from Heisman terms, but as a running back in college, any of those individual awards, you have to have such a monster year where you, you have to be the only guy scoring in your offense effectively because even if you do have 25 touchdowns and... Whatever, 1,500, 2,000 yards. If you've got a quarterback who's throwing for thirty touchdowns, then that guy's going to get the nod over you. So it's just so hard. I feel like for running backs, even if you are the best back in the country.
4: Sure. Yeah. You look at Alabama and the attention that went to Devonta Smith and, and Mac Jones, and, and yet at the same time, you look at the year that Najee Harris had. You know, it, it was. It wasn't apparent that Najee Harris, you know, wasn't. The, the number two player on that offense, probably behind Smith, it, it was it was kind of tough to tell, even with the production numbers he put up. Najee Harris might well have been the best running back in the country last year, but he wasn't going to win the Heisman Trophy because – when people look at that kind of balance and with the types of numbers you're able to put up in the passing game nowadays, it's just really, really tough for a running back to put themselves into that situation. Even if they're a Christian McCaffrey type and catch the ball a lot. And I do expect Texas to throw the ball to Bijan John Robinson, a decent amount too.
2: Kevin Flaherty, 24 seven sports with us here on rock Chuck sports talk. Before I let you go, Kevin, uh, I don't know if you saw this. Some Vegas odds were released on over-under win totals. You probably could have guessed where Kansas was going to come in there or gotten pretty close at least. Uh, one, one and a half would have been my guess. Smack dab right at one. So Vegas is effectively saying, we'll give you South Dakota, but everything after that is uh, is going to be playing with house money. So I probably ask you this every year, but... You've taken the over or under on one win for KU football in 2021.
4: You know, Nick, when I saw that it was at one, you know, I I pretty much ran into the other room and, and asked my wife if I could, you know, have free reign to our bank account for a little while. And the, and the reason why is if you're not familiar with the way that, that betting works, if you push, you basically get your money back minus, you know, a small amount that the house takes in general. And I'm pretty sure that Kansas is going to get the one in the in the opening week of the season. At that point, you know you're either going to make your money back with you know a little tiny little bit off the top gone, or you're you're going to collect because they're going to get a second win. And I do think that there's a, a chance that they do uh, get that second win. But set at one, uh, I would bet that all day long. If it was one and a half, Nick, you know then. Where if they get one win and that's it, you know, you you lose your money. You know, I, I might have to think about that a little bit, but at one, I think that's a that's a pretty sweet bet, and I would I would certainly think about taking that myself.
2: What gives you confidence that they'll find a win somewhere else? You know, it's
4: uh, I think that there are going to be multiple opportunities there. I, I know uh, you'll have to ask him about it when he's on your show, but I know that uh, a certain Fog.net person named Scott Chasen believes that, that Kansas has the pieces to maybe surprise Coastal Carolina in a game Ooh. that not a lot of people are going to are going to give Kansas a, a chance in. But you know, you look at the way last year's game went, and with you know, sort of all the fluky turnovers that happened really early. If Kansas simply plays poorly but doesn't turn the ball over. Kansas would have been right in that thing at the end of it. And so I, I think there's something to be said for that. You know, I think there's something to be said that if Kansas is well coached and disciplined, you know, like, uh, like what, what Coach Leipold has done in the past, I think that you're looking at a team that, that could surprise somebody in the Big 12 as well. And if Tyler Shuck doesn't pan out for whatever reason at Texas Tech, don't forget, that's a team that, won Kansas beat last time they came to Lawrence. And two, when they played in Lubbock last year, Kansas barely had a roster. I mean, with all the guys out and, and everything else, and yet Texas Tech won on a field goal that went through after Kansas blocked it. So I, I think that there are going to be opportunities in the Big 12 season. Like Scott said, I, I'm not willing to pick Kansas over Coastal just yet, but at the same time, I think that – he makes some good points in terms of why that would be one that everybody's sort of counting as a loss and and maybe shouldn't be. And so I do think that there are going to be multiple opportunities for them to, to grab that second win next year. But the big thing there is with the, with the limit set at one, if they win that opener, you're, you're already there. You're already at a point where you're at least getting your money back. And then at that point, you just, uh, just needed to pull off one more.
2: So there you go. So, Somehow, Kansas being the first Power 5 opponent to go play a game at Coastal Carolina, yet they still have an opportunity to pull off an upset. I don't know how any of this works, but with Kansas (laughs) football, I guess you just sort of throw preconceived notions out the window. So, uh, that'll be interesting, but yeah, one. That's all it's going to take. So, if you have the stones... You,
4: you You think about it, Nick. We've had trouble picking upsets in the past with Kansas... Because you just haven't really known when they're going to happen, right? I mean, nobody would have picked Kansas necessarily to win some of the games that they, nobody would have picked them to beat Boston College. I mean, nobody would have picked them, you know, a year or two before that to, to beat TCU. So it's not necessarily something where you look at the schedule and say, "Oh, this is the upset that could happen." Necessarily. But I, I do think that there's going to be times in there, especially if Kansas is well-coached and and doesn't beat itself. There are going to be opportunities in that schedule.
2: He's Kevin Flaherty. You can check out his work, 24sepsports.com. And uh, if you have a husband or wife like Kevin who is <laughs> willing to let you throw some money on KU football, you know at least his opinion. So uh, wh- if, you, if you win, you guys can celebrate together. If you lose, you know where to direct your complaints. Kevin, Thank you for the time, as always, ma'am.
4: Thanks a lot, Nick.